This is Transistor.fm. Code Fun Podcast Network. Hey, Nate. Hey, how you doing, Ron? Hey, I'm doing pretty good. How are you, Andrew? I'm doing well. Welcome to another episode of the Ruby Blend, where we talk all things Ruby. This podcast is brought to you by our friends at Linode. Whether you're working on a personal project or managing your enterprise's infrastructure, Linode has the pricing, support, and scale you need to take your project to the next level. Get started on Linode today by going to linode.com slash rubyblend. How are you guys doing during the virus? What virus? Good answer. Next. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Still stuck in my house, just like everyone else, but yeah, getting used to it. So yeah. That's how you I'm hanging in there. One interesting thing that I found is immersive video games are are helping. I mean, you know how much of a time sink they can be. But if you if you really get started on a role-playing game or something, you're into it for six hours and it feels like only one hour has passed. So it's a it's a nice way to pass time quickly, even though usually that's a net that's a negative for me. What are you playing? And what are you playing on? Also very important. I've got a PS4. And my daughter uh, is really into Skyrim. So we just picked up the latest version of Skyrim. She played it on the PS3 for quite a bit and was begging us to get it. So we got it. And now we're all building characters and taking turns playing our people through. Dang, your daughter's a gamer. Respect. Nate, I also have a PS4. Just throwing that out there. Yeah, we'll have uh, have to connect and play some stuff. I'm sure some of those games uh, <laughs> that you're playing might not be entirely family appropriate. Hey, I play Red Dead. I play a lot of Red Dead, although I'm at maximum dishonor because in Red Dead Online, you can basically choose whether you're going to be an honorable player or a dishonorable player. And I am at max dishonor. Kind of proud of that. <laughs> is it, so is that a family appropriate game? With a name I, like Red Dead? I'm sure it is. I think it is. <laughs> I don't think it's not. Yeah, I think it is. Yeah. It's not well, I mean, bad. it's not like Grand Theft Auto, right? No, no, it's not like Grand Theft Auto. What's I think you would Grand really Theft like. Auto? Well, yeah, but that is a good question. I love Grand Theft Auto. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think you'd like Red Dead. It's a beautiful game. It is a truly beautiful game in terms of graphics. Yeah, it's, it's, I love the open world play. So, I'm sure I would love it as well. I've just been a little worried about it with the young ones running around. (laughs) What about you, Ron? You playing any video games? I probably should. I too have a PS4 that I don't ever touch, but right now I'd be okay with playing any game that simulates me being outside. So So you and I, (laughs) Grand Theft Auto, it sounds like. (laughs) All right, Nate, what, what are we talking about? Well, top of mind for me right now is GitHub sponsors. Yeah, I've had a few people reach out about Stimulus Reflex asking how they can support the project in different ways and the various contributors and whatnot. And so I went through the, over this weekend and set up GitHub sponsors for myself, like my own login, just to kind of see what that looks like and what it means to get set up individually and then look at what needs to happen on the repo itself. And then also I would like to share some of those contributions if they do come in with, with people that are contributing to the library. We've had some significant contributions on the documents and 
just the general um, enthusiasm and audience building and things like that. So I'd love to share any any of the proceeds that come come our way to the team that's helping helping build stimulus reflex. So not quite sure what that looks like yet. I know Open Collective is a thing and, and we work with them on the code fund side, but I've never set that up as like a project owner. So that'll be the next thing I, I delve into. But GitHub Sponsors was pretty, pretty straightforward, pretty easy to do. You do have to fill out like a tax form, you know, provide some information, your bank account and that sort of thing so they can get you paid. But overall, it was pretty painless. Yeah, if you need help with Open Collective, let me know. I have a little bit of experience with it. And I guess we need to shout out Justin Dorfman, who's our, what is Justin? Justin does a lot of things. He's our, I guess, marketing guy or publisher outreach person. We call him J Money, or at least I do. But he is on the Open Collective board. So I guess he's probably a good resource for you as well. Yeah, yeah, definitely. We'll, we'll reach out to him once I start doing the Open Collective stuff. So I'd say this week we'll get uh, at least rudimentary GitHub sponsorships added to Cable Ready and the Stimulus Reflex, maybe a couple of the other Ruby gems and libraries that I've got, like the Stimulus Controllers library that's starting to take shape. And we'll just evolve it from there. Nice. So you heard it here, folks. Sponsor Nate, if you want to see more cool stuff come out of Stimulus Reflex and the associated libraries. So yeah, I would say the other thing that I've got going the, this weekend, I had, I've got, so I did land a, a consulting job, which I've been kind of doing on retainer, which means I haven't been doing much, but I've started to ramp up that effort over the weekend on a legacy Rails 4 app that was originally created in 2015. And it's kind of fallen out of maintenance, so obviously, since it's still Rails 4. A lot of old gems in there, and I was just trying to get the project installed locally. And it was a lot more painful than I wanted it to be. I had all sorts of gem conflicts, various versions, even with the gem lock file. Part of the problem was that I had to downgrade bundler so I could begin bundling this old, older gem file, this gem lock file. And then I was still getting version conflicts on the gems because a lot of the gems themselves weren't pinned in the gem file itself. And so what I ended up doing is I thought, well, I'm going to pin every single gem in the gem file myself. And I'll just essentially comment the entire file and just come back down one, one gem at a time and, and install them that way. And referenced the lock, the original lock file to give me some idea of what versions we should be on. I was upgrading patch releases and things like that to, to try to mitigate the conflicts. And I finally got everything installed, but it took pretty much my entire Saturday morning to do that. So long story short, the lesson or the takeaway there is pin, pin your gems. I don't think it's enough to just rely on the gem lock file. I would agree with that. I've actually never, actually, maybe that's not right. I don't think I've ever seen or touched a Rails 4 app, except maybe I did. Maybe I touched one like right as it was being upgraded to 5 at my last job. But I came in right around Rails 5 time. So I've never even worked on a Rails 4 app. You're, you're spoiled. You don't uh, remember the pre-bundler days when there was no, no way to actually pin the versions. <laughs> Sounds terrible. No, I RBM, don't. yeah, I was going to say RBM had a utility that you could use where you could essentially kind of create like a, 
a version file for all of your dependencies of what versions were installed. And you could use that with RVM to then install the appropriate versions. But it was still pretty terrible. Bundler was a godsend when it came. Is that a gem set? Is that what people are talking about when they reference a gem set? Yes. Mm -hmm. Okay. I've heard of that from the before times. (laughs) Back in the olden days? Yeah. (laughs) So pin your gems. Oh, and the other thing on this legacy project that's kind of interesting to me is I've got everything installed. I was able to you know, run uh, the Rails server, bring it up, hit the login page. The, the data seeds aren't enough for me to kind of get in and, and poke around on the app. So then I ran the test suite, which is our spec, and everything fails. And it looks like the, so this, this code base has updates as recent as the end of last year. But uh, from what I can tell in the test suite, everything that I've kind of spot checked so far the last time the test suite was updated was in 2015. So I'm not sure if the tests should pass. It looks like they're probably blocked by some failure with um, essentially setting up the data for the tests, kind of like fixtures or factories are failing. So there may be one fix I can do there and, and then it all works, but I kind of doubt it. It's like an onion. I'm peeling layer by layer as I kind of get into this project. I thought you were going to imply that all the tests were failing because they use RSpec. Oh, uh, no, it's actually really well tested. There's quite a bit of tests in it, but literally no, no test actually executes or passes. So I've got to get to the bottom of that. But I was so fed up with the gem file stuff that I, you know, once I got that working, I, I declared victory for Saturday and just stopped. And then I didn't pick up a computer for the rest of the weekend. Do they not have CI? Of any sort? No. This thing's hosted uh, on Heroku. Shame. Um, but yeah, there's not a staging environment. There's no kind of CI check or anything like that that's running on GitHub or anything like that. So, so yeah. we're having I mean, people are making money with the app. So it's one of the, it's one of those lessons where, you know, how much pragmatism do you apply versus you know maintenance when it's a single developer that's managing those things and kind of has their their system tuned to operating for that particular customer that works well. And then it all falls down when somebody else has to pick up the baton and start running. Yes. This is why it's important to keep your tests up to date. I'm actually running into uh, that, you know, at my current job, not the problems that you're, you're having though. The fact that we actually have really good tests because if we didn't have the tests that we have, I would not be able to do what what I'm doing, what I'm trying to do now. I'm a little bit over a month in, and so I'm still trying to understand all of the, you know, the the business logic, what, you know, what the business uses the various different data sources for. And I'm in the middle of doing some refactorings on our API clients. And yeah, if it wasn't for the tests that we have, I would be pretty sunk because the tests are pretty much teaching me what everything does as I'm going along and then also keeping me, keeping me from breaking everything. So now are you, are you testing with our spec? Are you using many tests? What are you doing on those? We're testing with grumpy old man. No, we're teaching, we're, we're testing with our spec. I think you're the only one that that uses uh, mini tests, you and DHH. <laughs> By extension. Wait, are you saying you'd prefer to be using our spec? 
not anymore. <laughs> At one time, I would have. Yeah, it is nice that there's so many resources for RSpec and not for mini tests that I don't know. It, it's tempting, but no, I I'm good with mini test. Yeah, that is one interesting thing. Like superior marketing will always win over superior product, and we see that over and over again. I mean, that's one of the reasons Microsoft, you know, won back in the day was uh, just a superior kind of marketing strategy of how they were getting their product into the hands of people. And once, once you get that critical mass, it really doesn't matter how good the tool is itself. It, it will, you'll have a whole ecosystem built up around it. And then it just becomes the default choice. Right. I'm seeing that same thing with, so I'm, you know, I do some freelancing on the side and for the longest time, if people requested just like a simple marketing site, I'd either, you know, build it in Rails or I would just tell them I'm not going to do it. And recently I've gone back to using WordPress, which for a long time I wouldn't use just because, you know, I had my biases against PHP. But really, like, it's, it's the same thing, you know, it's been used and this whole ecosystem has built up around it. And, you know, it's kind of like, well, if you can't beat them, you might as well join them type thing. So I say that to say this. I mean, I think you guys should rewrite all your tests in RSpec. No. Well, <laughs> no for many reasons. Mostly because, well, it wouldn't even be that hard because it's not, we don't have a crazy big test suite, which for some reason I get chastised for. Although Nate wrote all the tests. Maybe that's why you get chastised for it, because he's the one writing all the tests. Well, I've added tests, but it's always like, well, when something goes wrong, it's always like, well, could we have written more tests? And I'm like, we could have, but we didn't. That's, <laughs> it wouldn't have caught this issue anyway. <laughs> you can, well, uh, that's, the, that's the funny thing about tests is you, you can get a false sense of security from them, but oftentimes the, the more tricky bugs require so many moving parts that the, the, the test set up to essentially reproduce the condition, especially in a distributed system, is just not feasible. I mean, it's not an excuse to not write tests. Don't get me wrong. But it's sometimes like those weird edge cases are really hard to trap in a test suite. Well, would that mean then that there may be an architectural issue? Maybe if you find that, you know, it's difficult to test, that maybe you need to go and rethink the, you know, how it's designed and implemented. I would say that's kind of the go-to, like, answer. Like, and, and certainly can be. Like, if you find your code itself is difficult to test, then that's problematic, right? But I'm kind of curious, like, do you have specifics, Andrew, on this, on this last scenario where you're getting chastised? Yeah, so we made a change somewhere in the app and it messed up something else. It was specifically, uh, it had something to do with dates. That's what I remember specifically. I think it was on our campaign form where we were changing, oh, it was on the campaign form. We were changing dates and the dates were getting overridden by a parent object and we didn't catch it for a while and then, then we did catch it. And we fixed it, but it was like, why did, how did this, how is this able to like ship and like not get caught? 
until now, if we had more testing, would we have caught this? And I said, no, I didn't think that testing more would have caught that specifically, but we've had a few of those types of issues where there's something far away from what we're adding that gets broken. Yeah, I mean, well, that's kind of the goal of tests, right, is to build the confidence that you can do those refactors and you don't have these side effects. But in this particular case, I think it was one of those conditions where the business rules weren't entirely clear. So, I mean, you can't write tests if you don't know what the rules should actually be in the first place. Yeah, I, yeah, I mean, I don't think, yes, the business rules were unclear, but we didn't really catch what was happening we, we didn't catch that it was happening at all because if we had caught it, we probably would have been like, yeah, hmm, is this really what we want to have happen? And there, we would have had a discussion about it, but we didn't even, we didn't even notice. Yeah. Well, I mean, then, then you have to ask the question, was it, was it really a bug if like nobody on the team noticed until it didn't behave the way someone expected it to? Yeah. See, I wish you would have had that exact same sentence already in my head when I was trying to explain my way out of this predicament. Yeah. That's an interesting like lead into this conversation about bugs. Like, especially when you work with, uh, I mean, we're fortunate in that pretty much everybody on our team is pretty, is, is technical, but oftentimes teams are composed of, of, you know, folks doing lots of various roles, wearing different hats and not everyone is technical and kind of, getting everyone in agreement about what a bug actually is. Sometimes software just doesn't behave the way that a particular user may expect it to. And, but it, that, that same behavior may be exactly what someone else expects. So then is that a bug or have we just not clearly defined the business rules? I have had that conversation a lot. Bug versus feature. Although I think we should steer it back a little bit to uh, Ron's API refactoring. Yeah, we kind of took over. Sorry, Ron. Yeah, no, that's that's really what I had to say about that. Just it, how important it is for for me personally, you know, day to day to have good tests to work off of. Because yeah, I would be pretty sunk, or at least I would be spending a whole lot more time bugging everyone else on the team. Like, hey, what is this supposed to do? Uh, what do we use this for? You know, learning the code base, but also learning the, you know, the business at the same time can, you know, be a little hairy. And so, yeah, the tests, the tests are really, really beneficial right now. While we're on this subject, I want to plug Jason Sweat. Jason Sweat, for those of you who don't know, has a podcast that he does on Rails. He puts out a lot of testing materials around Rails. So if you haven't heard his material or read his material, we'll put it in the show notes because I think Jason is a great entry point for testing related material around Rails because he was definitely the first one that popped in my mind about, you know, who's like the Rails testing guy right now or female or whomever. Just he, he definitely popped in my mind immediately as Rails, like Rails testing and his content. So I have a question for you guys. When you are writing tests or in Andrew's case, when he's not writing enough tests, do you, <laughs> do you write tests first? Do you write tests last? Do you have a particular, you know, for a while, a little while ago, we had like this big like 
TDD thing going on. It was almost like if you weren't writing tests first, you weren't doing it right type thing. What do you guys do and how do you feel about that? Go ahead, Nate, because one speech you gave me early on in my coach fund career has shaped how I feel about this. <laughs> uh, I have done test first and I think it's, I, I think it's a discipline that is, it's a worthy discipline. Like I think everybody should try it for a period of time at least. And I know some people are, are still like religious advocates of test first. And I do think it forces you to think differently about your code. Having said that, and, and generally, I think it will also produce better code at a particular scale, if that makes any sense. Because you're thinking when you're doing tests first, in my, my experience, it's a little narrow. It's narrowly focused. And so I tend to be more of a big idea. This is one of the reasons I like Ruby is, is I like to take these abstract ideas, abstract thoughts that are just kind of out there, pie in the sky, like, let's see how feasible this is and just start to experiment. And we're just molding the Play-Doh, if you will. And when you're doing it that way, like when you're building a product or, or kind of experimenting with ideas that way, tests are actually friction that prevent you from you know, stumbling into solutions that you may not discover if you're going test first. And so nowadays I tend to do test after that kind of exploratory phase because I've, I can't tell you how many times I've, I've done things. And this is true of Stimulus Reflex and other, uh, a lot of the other libraries that I've got is I probably would have never landed on those solutions had I been doing them test first. Yeah, I, that's basically my opinion. My also added opinion is that until very recently, I wasn't at a place with my knowledge in terms of like architecture, like how am I going to architect this? How am I going to, you know, do this or that? I wasn't at a place where I could get that so far in ahead that I could write the test first. Like I needed to kind of stumble into the solution because I just wasn't experienced enough. Yeah. I don't, I should, uh, sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off, Ron, but I, I should qualify that with test first is a worthy endeavor. And I think anyone that takes the time to to do a few projects disciplined in that way, it, it you'll start to get the experience and kind of learn where the boundaries are. You'll also start to learn how to craft code that is still testable, even though you may not be writing tests for them. And so once you get that level of experience or discipline, then it becomes, it's not quite um, as necessary to be so rigorous with your testing. Right. I was going to say, if, if it's a matter of experience, you know, Nate's been doing this for what, like 120 years and he still, you know, doesn't always write his tests first. So, well, he doesn't always <laughs> write tests at all. <laughs> yeah, Mentioned my lack of writing tests. <laughs> but, yeah, I think, I think like if you write your tests first, you won't get into that case that I mentioned earlier where you're like, okay, you uh, now, now my, my code is hard to test because I've architected myself into this weird, you know, weird state or whatever. So, you know, there's definitely benefits with that. I mean, all your testing is done up front, but me in, in practice, what I, yeah, I end up like doing exactly what you were saying. They like playing around, trying to figure stuff out, trying to figure out, you know, how I want to go about this. And it just isn't practical for me to, you know, write a test to test 
a theory and then go back and change it for every theory because my, you know, I'm iterating over theories so, so quickly until I land on something. But then when I land on something and I'm like, okay, I, I, I really feel like this is probably the way, then I'll start to kind of go in and kind of write some tests as I, you know, as I go. But I'm very rarely, if ever, like the red green refactor, like every test has to fail make, you know, write just enough code for it to pass and then, you know, write my next test. Yeah, I, I should point out too that, like, I mean, we're talking about a spike, right? Spiking a solution and then and then kind of seeing where it goes. And Andrew's been with me enough, and really you have too, Ron, where we've kind of explored different ideas. And had we been rigorous in our tests up front, and, and these were pretty large ideas too, so it wasn't just like thinking about a class it was thinking about an entire system and there's been enough refactors like, Oh, well we need to change this or change this structure or add this whole new component or refactor the entire thing where had there been a test suite built up around like those initial efforts, we probably would have never bothered with the refactor because it would have been too much friction, but that like your test first and your spike are not mutually exclusive things. Sometimes you may want to go down an exploratory effort to kind of tease out where you want to, like what the solution might look like, and then come back to it and say, that's where we're going to go, but we're going to do it all test first now. Yeah. So Nate, we recently had a pretty kind of talking about tests and like hairy problems with hairy solutions that you kind of need to play with in order to understand. We had a very deep deep pair session the other day with stimulus reflex sessions. You want to touch on that a little bit? Yeah. I mean, that's actually kind of an interesting segue because with Ruby on Rails, you can, you can run sessions in various ways, right? So you can, you can structure your sessions so that they're managed by a cookie store. You can set them up so that they're managed by something like Redis or Memcache. You can also save your sessions out to the database. And if you're using a third-party storage mechanic like Redis to store your sessions, then Stimulus Reflex has some interesting behavior. And we found this once where with Stimulus Reflex, with, so I should probably set this up so everyone has their proper context, but essentially with Stimulus Reflex, it's using a WebSocket and Rails connects the WebSocket essentially with the, with a request. So a web request comes in there, it gets upgraded and then the socket connection is established. And the session object, the Rails session object, is part of that request. And so Stimulus Reflex will actually delegate the, the session handling to the connection, that initial WebSocket connection, which is fantastic and makes it all nice and easy. The problem is that that WebSocket connection is persistent. And so any changes that we were seeing happen on the, on the typical web request side we're not being reflected to the reflex or vice versa. So we initially caught it where we were making session changes in the reflex, but it didn't seem to reflect appropriately when you would do a web request. And we realized that we weren't committing the session on the reflex after the reflex finishes. So we figured out where that was. We added that committal. But then just recently, this debug session we had last Friday was when there were session changes on the web request side, on the typical Rails you know, request uh, lifecycle side, we weren't seeing those session changes reflected in the reflexes themselves. And so we had to, we eventually got to the point where we found out that was what was happening. And 
essentially had to dig into Rails internals and figure out, okay, we've already got this persistent connection that has a session established. And there's some intricacies inside of the internals of the session as well. But we basically had to tell Rails, hey, we're going to use this request that's hanging off this persistent connection for our session reference, but we need that session reference to reload. So those are the types of, like, it was a very, like, it was one of those um, debug sessions that it took forever. We were down in the internals of Rails, just diagnosing what was happening took forever. Then we had to look into the internals of Rails, what's going on there. And then we finally got it. This solution was pretty simple and elegant, but it took a while to get to it. And and if you if you couch that in the context of this testing conversation, how do you build a test setup to replicate the, those conditions? Pretty difficult. Yeah, right? I have no idea how you would do that because like surfacing the bug is really hard. Yeah, just just trying to understand because you have to to for, to get people's empathy on this. We're dealing with a session object that looks like it's identical to a Rails session object because it is. It's the same exact object shares the same session ID, but the state that it's holding is different from the two ecosystems on the WebSocket versus the typical Rails lifecycle. So it took a while to figure out that, that these look like the same session, but they're actually not because they're not commit like reading fresh and committing back every time. Yeah. And there were several times where we were like, all right, this is definitely going to be the solution. And we would load up like how we were testing it and it wouldn't work. So yeah, it was a like just so many. Yeah. I don't, I don't know how I would possibly test that because we basically had to have two windows open. One was receiving, getting like hydrated basically through stimulus reflex. And the other was just using a normal rails session and like, that was how we were basically surfacing this error because something that was saved in our session wasn't being reflected in the stimulus reflex object. Yeah. I mean, I'm sure we could get a test around that eventually, but I mean, we're talking like two weeks of work just to really think through all the mechanics of what what the test setup would even look like for that. And that's time. I'm not going to burn doing that because I could be adding more useful things to the library. Well, also, Stimulus Reflex doesn't really have any tests, except, well, it has some JavaScript tests. It only has one Ruby test. And Ron, guess who added it? It was your boy. Of course. Sister yeah. doesn't write enough tests. Yeah. I but write tests sometimes. Everybody knows who to blame that there's not enough tests on Stimulus Reflex. Yeah, Ron, where's that PR? <laughs> My bad. <laughs> yeah. Contributions are very welcome. Yes. I'll get on that. Oh, thank you. Because I don't want to do it. <laughs> you know, to, to fix your little situation at work, you know what you have to do, right? Just hire another developer. He'll be low man and he'll get blamed. Or she will get blamed for there not being any tests. Problem solved. Uh, I'll still get blamed. <laughs> <laughs> for some reason, I'm equated with tests. I don't know why. I think because Nate is not equated with tests. (laughs) So in Eric's mind, it's like, well, Nate doesn't write that many tests. So who, who's next? And there's only one left. Yeah. No, in fairness to Simeos reflex on the Ruby side, I mean, for the longest time action cable, like testing anything action cable was pretty difficult. Oh yeah. But we have the action 
cable testing stuff got merged into Rails proper, I believe. Yes, I'm certain. Yeah. So, I mean, maybe, maybe there's some opportunity there now. Yeah. So if anyone wants a contribution in this stimulus reflex, we would love some tests, love, and we would, we would heart that instantly. <laughs> and then we'll pull you in for a conversation about testing WebSocket stuff. I'm going to be sick that day, by the way. I don't think I mentioned that. That's my sick day. Kind of along with the JavaScripty side of Stimulus Reflex, Webpacker 5 came out and then subsequently 5.0.1. Ron, have y'all upgraded? Or what, what version of Rails are you on, Ron? <laughs> That's a really good question. I'll get back to you on that. <laughs> Nate and I are running hard on 6.0.2.2, which is latest. And we're running latest on almost everything. But we're not on Ruby 2.7 yet because I'm kind of waiting for Rails 6.1 to come out to get rid of all those Ruby deprecation warnings. But I was thinking about upgrading to Webpacker 4. I mean, 5, sorry. But I... I'm in uh, the GoRails Slack room. So if you're a member of the GoRails community, there's a Slack room for people to kind of talk about some stuff. And we talked about this with Chris when he was on a few weeks ago. But I was asking that group if anyone had upgraded yet. And someone said, no, I'm not upgrading because every like major bump of Webpacker that comes out inevitably has something broken in it. And there's inevitably like one or two patch releases right after it, which was pretty funny because right after that, there was a patch release. So now I'm kind of just waiting to see someone else do it first. So what what else is in uh, Webpacker 5? What are we getting? Well, I think the reason that it was a major version release was largely due to the fact that they they drop support for some node and some Rails versions. So I believe you need to be running, and I'm checking right now, I believe you now need to have Rails 5.2 in order to, to use Webpacker 5. Yeah. Is the, what's, your, what's your sense of the upgrade path? Is it going to be painful or is it pretty straightforward? It doesn't seem bad at all. It doesn't really seem like you're going to have to change much I think the main thing that they've added, and I'm pulling up their change log to make sure I say this correctly. Yeah, they've added support for multiple files per entry. So now you can have two entry files with the same names inside packs folders. So you can have like home.scss and home.js. And what this really is, in my mind, is the Rails team starting to push farther and farther out of the asset pipeline. Because even though a lot of people do it, I mean, we do it at CodeFund, you're not actually recommended to use the Webpacker for your style sheets, for your, like, yeah, for your style sheets, or really for your images either. You're recommended to do the normal Sprockets asset pipeline. But the last team I was on and also at CodeFund, we when we made the Webpacker upgrade, we everything was put into Webpacker pretty much. Now at CodeFund, we had a few things remaining in the asset pipeline, but I'm pretty sure I removed everything out of the asset pipeline not too long ago with a PR. But what this is basically is 
is making that more and more of a thing that you can do. So now you can have like one entry, which is like home. And like I said, you can have home.js and home.scss. Yeah, this is an interesting move, especially if it really does signal that Rails is moving away from asset pipeline into and really going all in with Webpacker. In some ways, it's a bit of a risky play because they're, if that's really what they're doing, then then they're giving up a degree of control over you know a build step for assets, and and essentially putting that in the hands of a third party team that's that's not part of Rails core, which is is interesting. I'll, I'll be a little bit sad to see uh, asset pipeline die, but I also don't like having a foot in both worlds either. So. Yeah, that's the thing. And I was going to ask, I mean, how many people or how many projects do you think are already using it ever since I was, you know, was able to use Webpacker? I've been just, I've just moved every, you know, all of my asset handling over into using it, you know? And so if people are using it anyway, even when it's not recommended for, you know, style sheets and, you know, images and stuff like that. You know, why not? It seems like that's the way people want to go. Yeah. I don't know that. Yeah. I I want to, I want to see asset pipeline still have a degree of life as like a fallback, like safety net, because I'm not, I'm still not sold that Webpacker is going to be around forever going forward. Like, I don't know that it's got the longevity that Rails itself has, hopefully, but I'm not, I'm not convinced of it yet. Wait, wait, you don't think Webpack does or you don't think Webpacker specifically does? Uh, both of them together, I guess. Uh, but really Webpack itself. Like how old is Webpack at this stage? I don't know, but that is a really funded project at this point. Like it's got one of, it's one of the most funded projects on Open Collective. I mean, I think everyone is, I think Webpack kind of won almost, even though not everyone likes it. Yeah, well, yeah. I mean, Webpacker does save you a ton of pain, and if you doubt that, go go set up a an empty web Webpack project and do do something moderately sophisticated. It's don't do it. it it's still pretty terrible. Don't do it. <laughs> Laravel actually also has a really nice solution for it as well. But I think they, I think they too wrap uh, Webpack with something of their own, but. That what Ron asked is a really good question, which I don't think Nate or I have an idea of. So if you are using, if you're not using Webpacker or you are using Webpacker, but not using Webpacker for everything, tweet us at the Ruby Blend on Twitter, or you can message all of us individually and let us know because I'm kind of curious about that. Maybe we'll throw up a poll on Twitter when this episode releases. So... Yeah, there's not much more with the Webpacker 5. There's a good article that we'll link in the show notes that kind of goes a little more in depth than what we just did. But to me, the main things were, since we're already doing the multiple file entries, I'm not sure we really need to do anything. I think the main reason it was a major bump was because they dropped the minimum node version from 8.16 to 10.13 which is a pretty big leap. And it also now requires Rails 5.2 and above and Ruby 2.4 and above. You know, one thing I will say about the JavaScript ecosystem, which I, I do really like, is that, that they're not afraid of these large version numbers. It's so funny to me that, that we're so 
I don't know, wary of in the Ruby ecosystem. And maybe it's less so now, but we've got so many gems that are like version 0.0013. And they're mature gems that have been in production for years. And their version numbers are like still like at patch release level. Yeah. I think that's also because isn't the minimum, like when you release a node project or an NPM library, doesn't it default to like 1.0 unless you change it? I'm pretty sure it does. I just set up a new project and I can't remember what it did because I went in immediately and updated the version. Well, yeah, I it's either 1.0 or it does 0.1. I feel like it does 1.0 though, which is interesting because yeah, whenever I set up a new node project or a Ruby gem, I always start at 0.0.1. Yeah, well, and I think semantic versioning has something to do with this as well, right? When right. There, there are hard rules about when you have a major bump versus a minor versus a patch, um, you tend to get larger version numbers. But I actually think that's healthy. Like we shouldn't be afraid of, you know, version 24 of a package. Oh no, are we going to have the Semver talk? Yeah, well, we'll, I don't know yeah, if I'm ready for that one. Time. Yeah. <laughs> I do Semver. I try. Yeah, we'll have, to, we'll have to jive on that some other time. So I wanted to get an update from Ron because now you're into it a full week of remote or a little longer. How how has it been? Yeah, last week, I'm not going to lie, it was a little rougher than than I thought it was going to be, but that's because, I mean, I've worked from home, you know, on occasion before, but I've been the only one home. And having my niece and nephew here all week last week was definitely yeah it it put it on on hard mode so fortunately my wife is working from home now too and so she does a lot of the heavy lifting when it comes to my niece and nephew but still you know or you know orchestrating like you know trading off when you know she has to be on a meeting and stuff and you know the the kids are seven and eight so yeah, it was a it was a little a little more difficult than I thought it was going to be, but we we got we we got a system down um, by the end of the week. So, but yeah, I would say don't don't feel bad because with I mean normally we've got kids in school stuff like that, and I've got four girls. They're they're and they're with everybody home doing school at home. Definitely makes things a lot more difficult. Like I've been doing remote now for over a year and a half, uh, full time. And even with just having other people in the home that are doing remote that need help, uh, or will do, inter- you know, come in and interrupt and not quite respect the boundaries, that kind of thing is, is really challenging even for people who are seasoned remote workers. And so I wouldn't, I wouldn't beat yourself up too much over that. So if it, it's only taken a week to acclimate with even with kids in the home. I'd say you're doing pretty good. Yeah. I have been remote, what, almost six months, I guess. But it now everyone... So I live with three other people and two of them are now working from home. And one of them lost like all her jobs, unfortunately. So it has been weird having you know, three extra people in the house, but it's so far so good. Although I'm probably about to switch out the router 
for the Nighthawk because the strain on the internet has definitely, definitely serviced a little bit because kind of like my, I mean, I, I'm on calls. Well, it's, I guess it kind of depends how often, but sometimes I'm on a call all day pairing with Nate. And sometimes I'm on, you know, just like a call for a little bit and that's it. Or sometimes I'm not on any throughout the day, but my other roommate is on calls constantly now. And my other roommate is doing like a Zoom school. So the router is running hot, but I have a Nighthawk sitting up in my room that I might have to plug in. Hey man. Yeah. I'm experiencing (laughs) that as well. Not so much when the kids aren't here, but yeah, because they're, you know, we set them up for, you know, doing their online stuff, their online schooling and everything. And yeah, the, you know, I'm on meetings and I'm having to, you know, turn my, my video off to try to save bandwidth or whatever. But if you have any recommendations for hardware to help out with that, I am open. I'm about to call Spectrum. And I don't know, I don't know what I'm going to tell them, but I'm just going to act like a, a very upset customer until they, I don't know, give me something for free. Give me some kind of upgrade or something. Cause well, yeah, good we luck are struggling. With that. <laughs> Dude, no spectrum. We have AT&T fiber and I've almost always had spectrum prior to this. And I'll never forget the time that we called spectrum support because our, we wanted to upgrade the internet because it was just not enough for everyone in the house. Um, Cause at that time I was living, I was at college living in a house off campus and we were describing like that we wanted more internet and the lady on the line said, honey, can I ask you some questions? She's like, just personal. And I was like, okay. And she's like, does your, does your oven talk to you? And I was like, what? No. And she's like, does your washing machine sing to you? And we were like, no. And she's like, then what the hell are you paying so much for all this internet for? And we were like, you're the one charging us for this. What we know it's crap. <laughs> and she was just like, You're paying way too much. She's like, You guys need to downgrade. I'm like, No, we want more. <laughs> we, I don't think you understand. Like, this isn't enough. She's garbage. Doesn't understand or didn't understand your problem, nor the position that she played in her company. <laughs> no, I she was she was funny though. We were dying. But I if I do, I have a really quick hack for you. If you, if you want a good router, I would just pay for a good router. Although I really like the Nighthawk from Netgear. But one thing that we did that instantly boosted our speed before buying the new router is all of our cables that we were using were like Cat 2 or Cat 1 or Cat 3, just like low Cat numbers. And we didn't even realize like the one coming out of the wall into the router and then we were, sometimes we'd hardwire in and those were just like old cat cables, but we upgraded them all to cat six and instantly saw performance boost. True. Okay. I know I got some cat six kicking around somewhere. Yeah. So check that first is what I would say. Noted. So we're winding down. I did have a question for y'all because I don't think we have enough time really to get to the other things we put on our list today, but I was listening. Do you guys listen to Founder Quest from the Honey Badger squad? I can't say that I do. No, I haven't heard of them either. Oh, Nate. Nate, you would love it. Nate, you need to do this for me, please. It's, I think it's a really good podcast, personally. 
It's one of my favorites. But one thing that they were talking about at the end or at some point during their last episode was will this massive shift and change that we're going through, how is it going to have an impact on college educations? Because one of their views, someone on their team, and I can't remember who off the top of my head said that they thought that this would lower the value of a college education because why am I going to pay like way more for a online school? Like what's the, like you're charging me this much for online school, but I can go to like, there's actual online schools that are cheaper and, you know, is it really like worth it? But someone else brought up the fact that if you kind of think about it, the people who have college degrees right now, not all, but in a kind of a large majority maybe are the ones working from home and the ones who aren't are the ones that are forced to stay, you know, in harm's way. I wonder if you guys have any thoughts on that, kind of how the value of a college education will result from this. I mean, I can't speak for every, you know, everybody out there that doesn't have a degree, but I dropped out of school, not once, but twice. And um, I don't know, I think I did pretty good. So no, I think I'm not sure that we can actually draw a correlation between, you know, the people who are working from home being the ones that went to, you know, that have college degrees. And even so, like, that's definitely, that doesn't mean it's going to stay the same way, you know, because obviously everything's going to change. Like nothing's going to, we're not going back to the way that it was, you know, for anything. So, you know, I, I see, I can, I can see that where if we're forced, you know, quote unquote forced to, you know, only have online options, then yeah, what is going, what's, what's the difference, you know, what is going to differentiate a high dollar school from one that's less expensive? You know, there's still stuff like, okay, the course curriculum and and that kind of thing. But I think it's going to level the field a little more. I don't think that there's going to be that big drastic difference that there that there was previously because, you know, a lot of the experience is just not going to be there. You know, you're not going to, you know, be able to go away to college for a little bit at least. And, you know, you're not going to have that dorm room experience. You know, people say a lot of times it's not even so much about the education, but just the experience of being out there with, you know, other people being on your own and stuff. And if we can't do that, if people can't do that, then, you know, that's, you know, less of a draw. Yeah. I, I'm in your camp basically. Yeah. It's, I think the, the impact of that is going to be like, it's going to be far reaching into the future. One thing that I am concerned about, which I think is wonderful. I mean, so the the internet itself as a delivery me- mechanism for curriculum is a force multiplier. And so fewer people can reach and teach far more through through online, right? But I wonder what that's going to do to us culturally as, you know, we have fewer liberal arts majors and, and things like that and everybody treating it as where do I kind of get my vocational training for my job? as opposed to how do I become a well-rounded citizen? So it'll be interesting over time to watch how that plays out. Yeah, I'm interested to see how it'll play out. I'm kind of hoping that this entire ordeal makes a college education, I don't want to say less valuable, but maybe not 
I, w- I would hope that at the end of this, less companies would be using that as like a prerequisite for, you know, getting a job because that's just, you know, like kind of Ron alluded to. It's kind of ridiculous that I have a college degree. Ron does not. But like, why does that make me a better candidate than Ron? And it, it really doesn't. At the end of the day, it doesn't at all. So I don't think it's important personally. I think the whole experience thing is an interesting argument that I don't really, I don't have an opinion on necessarily because I agree that I had a lot, the experiences of colleges, I had a lot of fun, but like I also got into a lot of trouble. (laughs) So trouble builds character. Yeah, Yeah. trouble does build character. I got really good at running, but (laughs) you know. I don't know. It's not worth $20,000 for me to be like running out of parties at, in the middle of the night. Yeah, I would agree with that. But I, one aspect of it is the, I mean, the experience side is really your your network. So I think, you know, on-premises college education is far more valuable to extroverts than it is to introverts. Yeah. And I That's think there's also a, like a in, industry deal, at least hopefully all of this can get us to reevaluate how necessary it was it is for the industry because there's still other industries like I don't know doctor for instance that I would probably want my doctor to uh, have gone to a you know a college and got a a degree uh, you know a doctorate at least <laughs> but yeah you know for for you know for what we do at least you know, maybe we can reevaluate, maybe the industry as a whole can reevaluate, you know, how it feels about degrees or lack thereof, I should say. Plus one. Well, we have anything you guys want to talk about before we say goodbye for this week? I'm good. Yeah, I don't have anything either. Cool. Well, this has been a good episode, I think. We have not mentioned this, I don't think, but we would love, 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 love if you could rate us on iTunes, hit the star in the Overcast player, write reviews. That would all be amazing. It'll help us build a show and help us continue to make more content and hopefully get some guests on the show in the future. So yeah, if you're feeling up to it, we would love a review on iTunes or Overcast or wherever you are dropping reviews these days. Cool. So I guess I will talk to you guys later. All right. See ya. Bye-bye. This podcast is brought to you by our friends at Linode. With 11 data centers worldwide, including their newest data center in Sydney, Australia, enterprise-grade hardware, S3-compatible storage option, and their next-generation network, Linode delivers the performance you expect at a price you don't. Get started on Linode today by going to linode.com slash rubyblend. Podcast hosting is provided by Transistor.fm. They host our MP3 files, generate our RSS feed, provide us with analytics, and help us distribute the show to Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and more. If you want to start your own podcast or you want to switch to Transistor, go to Transistor.fm slash Justin and get 15% off your first year.